Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hey everyone, I'm Jacqueline Johnson, the founder and CEO of Create and Cultivate, and this is Work Party, a podcast for a new generation of women who are ditching the rulebook and redefining the meaning of work on their own terms. In each episode, we bring in leading female entrepreneurs for real talk advice on the topics that matter most to the modern career woman from hiring to mentorship to raising money and so much more. Whether you're pivoting to a new industry, negotiating a raise, turning your side hustle into a full-time gig, or pitching your company to investors, we're giving you the tips and tricks you need to take your career to the next level. Ready to make some money moves? Well, welcome to Work Party, the podcast. For years, there's been talk about how the publishing industry is in a decline, but the demand for content has never been higher. In 2020, American adults spent nearly eight hours a day consuming content online, and experts predict the amount of time people spend online will surpass that by the end of 2022. So it's up to publishers to adapt, which is where Samantha Berry comes in. Since leaving her post as the head of social media at CNN to take on the role of editor-in-chief of Glamour Magazine in 2016, the editor has been on the forefront of the industry shift from print to digital. Shortly after she took the reins at Glamour, the publication announced the end of its monthly print edition, and she's since led the brand to amass a record digital audience, reaching 15 million unique monthly users in June 2020 alone. And she's just getting started. Needless to say, I can't wait to chat with Samantha about her impressive career, from how she made the pivot from news to women's media, to why culture-pushing content is at the core of Glamour's digital-first strategy, and what the future holds for the next gen of journalists. So welcome, Samantha, to Work Party. We're so excited to have you. Um, so we'd like to start at the beginning of your story. So after getting your master's in journalism from Dublin City University, you started to build a career in journalism, working as a foreign correspondent, reporting from Brazil, Colombia, India, before landing your dream job at the BBC, which we were just talking about. So let's go back to this early career. What inspired you to get into journalism? And was media, was this something you were always interested in? I always loved English and I always loved media. And I think I was very lucky growing up in Ireland in the 80s and 90s that there were so many women that were front and center of media. So like most of the primetime news shows were anchored by women. Some of the best investigative journalists in the country, including Veronica Guerin, were women. And I also grew up with a female president. So there was this, you know, it was very nice to grow up at that time where it felt not only that anything was possible for a woman, including the highest office in the land, but I loved, I loved media. I loved listening to the radio. I loved watching the news. I loved, you know, reading any magazine that I could get my hands on. There was a little corner shop at the end of my street 
And after the magazines that hadn't been sold that month, they would cut the covers off and then put them in the trash outside. And all of us would just go take those and read them. It would be a month old magazine, but you'd be getting them all for free, right? I just always love storytelling. And I think I did my degree in English and a master's in journalism. And I did fall in love with broadcast pretty early. And so my first job, you know, my first paid job in media was in radio in Ireland. And I've brought that love of audio through everything that I've done, including at Glamour now, where we have a good few podcasts that we work on. And I'm fascinated as somebody that's started my career in radio at the explosion of audio, right? Whether that is podcast, whether that is clubhouse, whether that is in whatever sense, it's been interesting. It's very much for me to watch because audio, I think is a beautiful way of telling stories. I totally agree. And it's interesting because it's almost like a regression in like a weird way. Cause it's kind of like, I mean, I think for me, I also was a journalism major. I went to NYU for magazine production. And then like literally the year after me, like is when they launched like a digital journalism major. Cause it was like, kind of like the blogs were starting to happen. So, so much has changed in that industry. I mean, it, it's wild. And to see it kind of come back to podcasts and audio is really interesting. And I want to pick your brain on some trends when it comes to media and journalism a little bit later on. But, you know, I want to say you spent 10 years in the newsroom before stepping into, you know, this role at the helm of a heritage American. American women's media brand as an Irish woman. So how did you prepare for this role that you have now, which is essentially running Glamour? Anna Wintour basically brought you on, um, you know, which is amazing. So tell us a little bit how you prepared for that role. I think it's interesting because I do think the editors-in-chief of today are different types of editors than they would have been 10 years ago, right? So in major publications in, in America in particular, there was a clear trajectory of how you worked your way up to the EIC seat. And it was, you went in as an assistant editor or in the fashion closet or the beauty closet and you worked your way up because ultimately the main concentration was putting out a monthly print magazine. What Conde and I think a lot of other media companies understand is the newer types of editor-in-chief is understand the business side. They understand the art of storytelling across lots of different platforms. They understand, you know, leaning into content that is really important to the brand, but then expanding where they do their, their storytelling. And I think that was, for me, I had, I had spent 10 years in like breaking news, hard news, in control rooms, in broadcast studios. But what I had learned in every step of the way, whether it was a television producer for BBC uh, World News, whether it was working in radio in Ireland or whether it was running the social media team at CNN, every step of the way I learned kind of an extra way of telling stories. And I think for me, it was going into glamour with, first of all, an appreciation of its history, right? Like it's been around since 1939. If you go and dig into the archives of glamour, it is such a rich and deep and amazing women's publication in American history and done, you know, it was the first place to ever pay Andy Warhol as a 19 year old when he got off the bus. It was the first publication to put a black woman on the cover in America. You know, its tagline in the 40s was for the girl with the job. Obviously it's for the woman with the job now, but so progressive. So for me, it was all about, okay, how do I take and not be very respectful of the glamour that has come before me? but take all of the things I've learned in newsrooms, in social, in video, in digital, and take the brand that is Glamour and move that storytelling into the, the arenas that I had worked excessively in. And so that's how I 
how I looked at the change, which for some people I think was a bit surprising going from breaking news to publishing. But for me, it made sense. What's interesting is that, you know, again, you were at CNN, you're at BBC. You get this call from Anna Wintour. Like, tell us about that process. Like, were you immediately like, oh my gosh, this is perfect. Did you question it? Like, how was that interview process? Like, um, you know, because it's a big career leap. I mean, obviously being editor in chief is a huge honor, but but what made you want to say yes? I remember having that first conversation with Anna and it was like, you should put your hat in the ring. And I got in at the time I was working in Columbus Circle up in Manhattan um, at CNN and I had gone downtown to World Trade Center. And I remember getting in the car and driving up the West Side Highway and I called my best friend in New York, Orla. And I was like, oh God, this has just happened. And now I really want it. The second it was put on the table, I was like, I really want it. But that process was long. And I think it was really important. I talked to, you know, I, I don't know how many executives I interviewed with, like 15 plus. I wrote a memo, like an eight pager memo on what I would do with Glamour. I, you know, I, I'm sure there was a lot of extremely talented and worthy people in the mix. But for me, I was very clear also, I think I'm very honest about where I had gaps, right? Like it was, it's a fashion and a beauty publication. I didn't come in pretending to know all about those worlds, but I understood the ultimate message I wanted to do with the brand and the types of storytelling I wanted to do and understanding if I had the right pe people in the right position for the right verticals that I could do that as, as editor in chief. So it was a long process. Like it took a couple of months and, um, the deeper I got into it, the more I realized I really wanted to do it. And I also, Women of the Year, which is a huge franchise for us, that was a massive draw for me because again, it was something I hadn't worked in. I'd never worked in events, but you know, usually it takes us about six months to put Women of the Year together. We shoot the covers, we tell the stories, we spend a lot of time on the selection. And I think that was a big draw for me to go to Glamour as well, because I, I saw the opportunity to expand that. Before we get into the next topic, I wanted to give a shout out to one of today's sponsors, Honey. When I'm shopping online, an empty promo code field tends to haunt me at checkout. Am I missing out on savings? Well, thanks to Honey, manually searching for coupon codes is a thing of the past. Here's how it works. Imagine you're shopping on one of your favorite sites. When you check out, the Honey button drops down and all you have to do is click apply coupons. If Honey finds a working coupon, you'll watch your total price drop. I was in need of a new pair of headphones for this podcast and Honey saved me $15 at checkout. If you don't already have Honey, you could straight up be missing out on free savings. It's literally free and installs in a few seconds. Plus, by downloading it, you'd not only be doing yourself a solid, but you'll also be supporting this podcast. And I never recommend something I do not use. So to get Honey for free, go to honey.com slash party. That's joinhoney.com slash party. And now back to the episode. Hey, it's Patrick Starr. I'm coming straight to you with my very own podcast. Say yes to the guests. I'll be hanging out with some of my fiercest friends and spilling some serious tea on business, beauty, and being a boss-ass bitch. With me, baby, you'll never know what will happen. Find yes to the guests on Apple Podcasts or anywhere where podcasts are played. Start streaming and downloading now. And don't forget to subscribe because every Monday we're going in. We got so much to chat about. So turn it up and say yes to the guests. Yes. 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 So obviously as the editor in chief, you're responsible for a team of people who are looking up to you every day. And then also this now being a public facing face of the magazine, all of the fans and consumers and things like that. So would you say you're a natural leader or is this something that you had to sort of learn over time 
And what was your biggest learning curve stepping into this role? I think I was lucky that I like I'd managed a team of about 45 people at CNN previous to Glamour. And those were, and that was a 24-7 team. So they were in Hong Kong and London and Atlanta and DC. And I, I learned a lot in that. I'd gone from the process of being very much a TV producer and a reporter, which is not not that you're part, you're not, you are part of a team, but you're not necessarily running a large team. So I was lucky that I had learned a lot at CNN and how to manage a team. And I had an amazing boss at CNN, Meredith Artley, who really taught me how to manage people and situations and crisis and all of that. And I think, look, you're constantly learning as a leader. I've I've learned a lot about myself as a leader in 2020, right? Like I'm a very in-person kind of person. I'm an extrovert. I like to go for coffee with you. I like to go for lunch. I like to get to the bottom of what's happening. I like to, that's serendipity has been taken out for a lot of leaders and managers this year. So you've got to go the extra mile to feel like your team is being heard by you and that they can talk to you. And I think I would be surprised if there wasn't one leader or manager that didn't learn a couple of things about themselves in, in the way that they handled 2020, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's definitely, definitely been a challenge. And I'm sure like, you know, coming from where your background, the breaking newsroom, you're in there all night working on stories. Like it's very, very different now. So for years, there's been this talk about the publishing industry is in decline. I feel like every other month it's like, it's back, it's gone. It's doing this. It's coming, you know, it's going, it's crazy, right. To pay attention to. So shortly after you took the reins at Glamour, the publication announced the end of its monthly print edition. And you've since led Glamour to amass a record digital audience. So can you talk a little bit about the shifting industry? What are the trends you're seeing and what is the future of Glamour looking like for you? When you talk about publishing, right? For me, we did print for the first year I was there. But by the end of that year, it was definitely a decision that we made consciously. We have only a finite amount of resources and staff. And instead of taking their concentration into monthly print, which wasn't growing in the way that I wanted it to, I wanted to focus that energy and that growth into places not only that we could grow in our storytelling, right? Audio, video, long form documentaries. We just made a book, right? Which will have a longevity for a couple of years, a beautiful coffee table book. So we still have print in the armory, but it really was about concentrating not only where we could increase our storytelling, we could increase our audience, but really we could diversify our revenue. And that was important as well. So if you look at, you know, previously for lots of publishers, their main revenue was print advertising. If you look at a a publication, a title like Glamour now, we have commerce and affiliate link. We have videos, a huge growing part of our um, revenue stream. We have branded content, we have sponsored content, we have events. We have all of these different ways of funding and, you know, investing back into our storytelling that doesn't just come from print advertising. And I think most editors now and especially those that worked in traditional print world are looking at how do we take the IP of the brand, right? Like the the importance and the history and the things that, because I think that is as important now, even more so in the digital landscape. What do you stand for? What do you talk about? What is your, you know, USP? And then how do you monetize that so you can keep investing back into your storytelling? Yes, absolutely. And I can imagine for a company like Condé, which is a behemoth publishing company, that move probably took a while to get to that place of being able to completely shift the revenue model of of a larger business. So you were there right in the meat of that sort of happening and obviously shifting to 
digital first means, you know, with ad dollars, you can say we have, you know, I don't know, 4 million subscribers, let's just say, but now you're dealing with metrics and engagement and page views and traffic sources and bounce rates. So is it challenging to stay the course and create content you love while also trying to like find the trends and the data and hit the numbers and all that stuff? I think it's important to be, to be in the know about metrics and things you care about and time spent and scale and all of that, but not let that dictate your editorial strategy. So for example, one of the things that I came into Glamour really caring about, my first print issue was the money issue. I've done a podcast around money. We have constantly across all of our verticals, health and wellness and culture and entertainment, leaned into the the conversation around money and finance and women and money. And I think it took a good 18 months for for us to reap the rewards of that, right? Like, so we partnered with CNBC, something Glamour had never done before. We brought in much more substantial advertising from the financial sector than ever before. But that wasn't the reason why we wanted to do the content. We wanted to do the content because we thought it was editorially strong. It was an area we wanted to lean into. And it was something that wasn't just going to happen once off. It was a, it was something we were going to do continuously. So I think for editors, you often have to stay the course of like, I believe in this content. I believe in the longevity. I believe in the audience that it will bring in. And I believe eventually with enough, you know, skin in the game that advertisers will follow. Yes. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And I mean, last year was definitely a lesson in that as well. And you've been the editor in chief of Glamour for over three years now, and your team continues to be unapologetic for their culture pushing content from covering BLM protests to supporting Michelle Obama's when we all vote initiative. Why is this at the core of the work you're doing? And can you share a bit about that content strategy, how you're approaching these difficult conversations and what the impact is it's having both externally and internally um, at Conde? I think if you talk internally, one of the things that we are very lucky as part of the media is we have a platform to amplify stories. We have a place to get stories out. And I think it's really important that we constantly have this conversation with our team, with the wider Glamour team, the wider Conde team. What are the stories we want to tell? What are the stories against Asian American hate that we should be telling this week, this month? What are the stories around the Black experience further than Black History Month than we want to be telling, whether that's the Crown Act or hair discrimination or things that make sense for the Glamour wheelhouse, but touch on all those really important topics of culture and systemic racism and discrimination in all of its forms. So I think, I think it's, you know, again, constantly having that conversation with the people that you're working with, constantly bringing the right voices into the room, constantly assigning stories to the right reporters. And then also just understanding you have a platform, right? We have, we have an audience of tens of millions that come to us every month on site. We have a huge Facebook and Instagram and TikTok and everything audience, we should be using our platforms to get and amplify the stories of others. And I think that's, that's the very baseline, that's table stakes of what we should be doing in in the media, to be fair. Yes, absolutely. And so I'm curious to know, what are some of your favorite stories that you're, you're most proud of that you've done while you're at Glamour? Oh, wow. Okay. Well, I mean, women of the year every year is a big, big one for us because we spend so much time we spent so much time on it. And like last year we got to honor, it was interesting to, to not only shoot women of the year, like do the covers in in the middle of a COVID, you know, very strict COVID restrictions, but also instead of in lieu of the regular event to put a movie together around it. And we honored Dolores Herta, who's a 90 year old activist. And I don't, if you haven't 
read Dolores's life story or seen her talk. Like she's one of the most inspiring women that you will ever meet. We, we honored the, all of the women of Elmhurst hospital, which was the epicenter of COVID in New York, where I am. And, you know, everybody from the head of the cleaning staff to the, the head of surgery at the hospital, Regina King, I think just to be in the room where we're deciding that we can honor these women and also how do we shoot them? How do we do them justice? I think we as a team are always extremely proud of women of the year. And I think recently some of the big things that we've done, like we just had the Demi Lovato cover come out and she talks about her queerness. She talks about her version of sobriety. She talks about her eating disorder and um, Chris Rosa, who's our entertainment editor, did an amazing job at that. And we, again, we shot that under all the COVID restrictions where everything is happening over Zoom. And I think last year, the coverage that we had around the Crown Act and hair discrimination in the US, because Glamour has this, you know, underpinning of beauty as well, which is a topic we've covered for so many decades. And then to bring that conversation of beauty and really front and center, do a cover on hair discrimination, do videos, do wash day diaries, and really talk about the history of hair discrimination, in particular against black women in America. I think we, we as a team were very proud of that. Yeah. That's like a perfect combination of your background and like news and politics and then also beauty. Yeah. And, and I think there's more stories like that to be told, you know, out there. And I, and I think that's great that you guys are really pushing and breaking boundaries in the way that you're covering women as not these perfect people or like beauty objects, but really as humans that are complex and multifaceted. And obviously for you, the impact of having women in positions of power within organizations like Connie Nass is, is very real. In addition to the stories you're telling, you're also pushing for more diversity and inclusion within your team at Glamour. So how has the hiring process changed since you've joined and what impact are those changes already having on the next gen of journalists? I think just being very conscious of when you do have turnover of staff or you do have new positions, what, how are you consciously making sure that your pipeline includes a lot of diverse people? How are you actively having the right people in the room to lead projects or be involved in projects? And I think, look, I think we can always get better in that situation. It's just holding yourself and your team accountable is continuously and not for it to be something that happens once in a vacuum. And I also think, look, I think one of the things that is important is, especially if you're somebody that's hiring, is that you've got to go outside of your comfort bubble, right? So when I moved over to the US, it was interesting because I had to start a whole new team. And some of the people that I worked with in broadcast said, I went out and I found the best social journalists in the world to work on this team. And because I hadn't had all of this like ABC, NBC, I didn't have like the old colleagues I would have tapped into. So I had to make a real conscious effort of who I went out and who I courted and who I employed. And I think sometimes as, if you're a manager, it's, it's, you know, sometimes it's easy to be like, oh, this person works with me before I'm going to hire them, but to go further, do bigger, go better, do more in not only your recruitment, but your promotion and your process. I think it's something we should be all very conscious of. Hey guys, time for a quick ad break. 
Our advertisers help keep the work party going, so we super appreciate all of your support. Masoma, a female-founded, versatile jewelry brand built for layering, has become my go-to brand. Masoma's mission is to inspire confidence, spark creativity, and fuel collaboration. All ethos we can get behind here at Work Party. Masoma knows that every piece of jewelry a woman wears tells a part of her story. Her successes, her celebrations, her failures. The earrings she bought with her first paycheck, the surprise pick me a present from her best friend after a bad breakup, the matching bracelets they got on that wild holiday refusing to take them off for months. As we grow, so too does our armor. From past loves to career milestones, morning to night, we wear our treasured moments knowing they have shaped the person we have become. They are on a mission to build a more confident, creative, and collaborative world, starting a chain reaction one link at a time. And the best part, Work Party listeners are getting 15% off their Misoma order when they enter Work Party 15 at checkout. That's misoma.com, M-I-S-S-O-M-A.com, and Work Party 15 at checkout. Exclusions include fine and travel cases. You know, you've achieved so much success at a young age and, and you have a community of women who look up to you as a result of that. So do you feel pressure being the face of Glamour, being the face of that brand? And if so, how do you handle that in a social media world? Well, I don't feel young, first of all. Like I'm lurking on TikTok and then I realize how old I am. I'm like, oh. I mean, same I'm girl. <laughs> Absolutely old. same. Also, I remember how I used to dance when I was like 16. It was like big box, little box, like picking the apples. That was my dance. Like the stuff that they're, anyway, yes. Yeah, so I don't, yeah, I, I, thank you for saying I'm young, but no, I do not feel that. I mean, I feel the exact same way. I mean, all I think about is my talent show. I'm just a girl Gwen Stefani dance. I did in my jelly sandals. That was probably if ever resurfaces was so embarrassing, but everyone is like a choreographer, like, and they're 13. I know. Look, I think it's really important to surround yourself with the next generation of people that are going to tell, like when I was at CNN, I remember having one of my staff, Mizuma, who's actually wrote, written this amazing book about, um, girls around the world recently she came into my office one day and I was like we've got Facebook down we've got Snapchat down we've got Twitter down we got this and she just came in and she was like we've got to get online and I was like what's line and she was like it's a messaging app that all the kids are using and I was like okay so I think it's really important that like you never stop learning you never ever stop learning and curiosity is your best friend and and and, and surrounding yourself with people is your best friend like I was on this thing last night with Brown University students and we were going around the room and they were saying, oh, popcorn. It's this vernacular they were using to like throw from one person to another in a Zoom class. And I was like, did I miss this? Like, is this something I completely missed? But they were like, no, that's what we do in class. So I think it's important to, no matter where you are, no matter what position you are in, is I think the most successful people in the world are the ones that never stop learning and the ones that are curious and the ones that are always asking questions or again, like, having interesting conversations with people that they're not coming across every day. And I think that's something that I definitely live by. Absolutely. So, I mean, looking at obviously the highlights of being so successful, obviously success doesn't come without lessons and failure and things like that. So can you share a specific moment when you failed and what you learned from it? I mean, so when I started my, when I started my career, I remember I worked as a freelancer and I have a lot of empathy for anybody that's in a freelance consulting situation. And for a good three years, I worked, I would say 14, 15 hour days for RTE as a freelancer. But they had these things every like six or seven months where it'd be like a panel to get a staff job. And I kept getting rejected, even though I was in working there every day, I got, kept getting rejected for the staff job. And I remember being like, 
I don't understand. I'm good enough for you to have me in here working on every program, but I'm not, why am I not good enough to make whatever the box you're ticking for this staff position is? And I definitely took it a little hard at the time, but I didn't let it dissuade me. And what the reality is when I look back at that now, I realize it's probably the best thing I didn't get a staff job because maybe I would have stagnated there. Maybe I would have stayed there. But at the time it felt like a massive slight. And I think that would be definitely one of the lessons. Also, like when I was at the BBC, we had defined roles at the BBC, like any big corporation, there's often like a job description and there's the confines of the job. And at the time I was a TV producer and I was putting together shows and, and doing that. But then I kind of went out, I drew outside the lines of my job description and I started working in digital and social. And I started going on air talking about digital and social. So I would say one of my bigger lessons as well is don't be confined by why you, what you think your job description is. Like, don't be afraid to put your hand up and ask to do more or different or say you're passionate about your project and a project you want to get involved in. And I think that's definitely something I say to new newer graduates or people that are starting roles. Like, even if your job says you're only supposed to do X, Y, and Z, if you want to do A, B, and C, like, push for it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I totally agree with that. And I think that that's a very a perspective of our generation for sure, because I think like we've posted some stuff on Instagram that's been interesting where we'll say like the all hands on deck mentality and like we'll get pushback from people that are like, that's outside the job description, like you shouldn't be doing that, like blah, blah, blah. And so I think it's interesting because I feel like we often struggle at Crate and Cultivate. I mean, most of our, our team is like Gen Z millennials. I guess I'm like the old one, but like, you know, kind of toggling that line of like, I had the same experience, you know, I interned and worked worked at jobs that were hundred hour weeks when I was in my twenties. And that was sort of how you got it, worked your way up. Right. Like, and you just kind of made it all happen. And I think this new generation, there's like a totally different mentality about work and the way that they approach it, which is always interesting. And I think it, it's such an, a fascinating conversation for me because I think we've kind of grow, grew up in a different world of work than the new generation is. And it's always hard to kind of straddle that line, if that makes sense and figure out what, what the right way is. And I'm sure with Conde, which is like, been around forever and, and probably has its way of doing things. I'm sure it's, everything's a shakeup right now, you know, cause I think we're in this kind of painful inflection point of what work is, how we approach work and, and what that means, what career means in general, which, which anyway. And I also feel like a little tenacity never killed anybody. So like, I totally. also like one of my first jobs in, in the newsroom was, you know, working for a morning show, but I'd be working the late night shift. So you'd be like calling politicians at like midnight and being like, you're getting up at six o'clock in the morning and you're going to come on this show. And so I, I, I lost all ability to be mortified about phone calls or awkward about picking up the phone or awkward about cold calling. And I do think that there's, there's some of the DM generation that feels so uncomfortable with a phone call. And I'm like, do you understand the power of voice and picking up the phone and having a conversation and building a relationship. And I steer away from the word networking. You know, I've talked about this before because I feel like that feels very one way. I feel like everything is relationship, whether that's the intern, you know, the colleagues that you're interning with, like the people that I worked with when I was 21, 22 are the people that are recommending me for jobs now. Yeah. Right. And I think Sometimes you, people go into jobs and they're like, I need to look at the manager and the, the boss and the boss's boss's boss. And honestly, just look around you because the people that you're working with ultimately will probably more be more influential in your long-term career than that 
first boss that you work for. Absolutely. And I, that's one of the things that's interesting because obviously as we transition to virtual work, you know, myself and the C, the other people in the C-suite and the senior, you know, we're like, this is awesome. We could do this all day long, but I, I do feel bad for the entry, you know, entry level junior girls, because I was like, my first jobs is where I met my best friends. It's where I met like my network. Like so I got so much joy out of like, I mean, at the time I probably was like, whatever, you know, but like, those are the people in my life. I call that recommend me for jobs that like we have a group chat, you know? And I think there's something that to your point, like you miss on the virtual side of it. I mean, I think it has so many positive things, but also to your point, I totally agree. Like that grit and that, I mean, I can call anyone. I can have a conversation with anyone. I'm, I'm not afraid. I mean, that's how with create and cultivate, like everyone's always like, how'd you get these big speakers? I was like, I incessantly followed up with them on email yeah. until they got back to me. And I think, yeah, I definitely think there's something to that. Okay. So we're going to wrap with some sentence finishers. Are you ready? I'm ready. I'm ready. Okay. I'm ready to go. Okay. The three traits that got me to where I am today are, I think optimism, building friendships and relationships. And I think passion. Yeah. Love that. And the best career advice I always give is don't be defined by your job description. If there were more hours in the day, I would, I would probably lie to myself and say, I'd be working out more. (laughs) (laughs) Truly, truly. The craziest thing I've ever done for work is interview Donald Trump in a toilet in Miami. Oh God. (laughs) Yeah. That sounds about right. A fellow woman I admire is. I mean, I'm a big fan of Kamala Harris at the moment and watching what she is doing and having a woman in Pennsylvania Avenue. So I would say her. And a woman I'd love to interview, but haven't yet is. Oh, that's a great question. I've been very lucky that I, I feel like I, I mean, maybe Dr. Biden. I feel like you can make that happen though. <laughs> like, like I truly feel like that's going to happen for you. So I'm not worried about that. And success is doing something you love. I love that. Well, thank you so much, Samantha. Can you tell everyone where they can follow you and glamor online? No worries. Yeah. So go glamor.com. You can see us on most socials as well, where the tag is at glamor mag. And then I'm at Sam Barry. If you want to follow me. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. For more inspiring conversations like this one, subscribe to Work Party on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you enjoyed today's episode, make sure to rate and review us or show us some love on social. We love seeing you tune in every week and share your favorite episodes. We're at Work Party on Instagram and at It's a Work Party on Facebook and Twitter. I'm your host, Jacqueline Johnson, and this is Work Party. Work Party.